Thank you, virtual Nick. <laughs> it's like my thing. I, I get up and I say something saucy about the person who just introduced me. Evan. Um, okay, I'm Steve, in case you missed it. Um, hey, hey. I missed that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, before I get into it, I do want to let you know that these cards that are on your um, seats, uh, these are just a set of questions um, that are going to be here for the next six weeks. These are meant as discussion prompts for you and your family, you and your community group, you and your friends, whatever. Um, so take these with you, and as we go through this sermon series, or this year, I should say, on prayer, um, these are some great questions to talk about. So, let's begin today in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I mentioned, uh, this next year, the theme of our teaching and our time on Sunday mornings is going to be prayer. And so today, we're going to look at the most basic of all the questions, the simplest of all the questions, namely, what is prayer? And I say that's the simplest of questions, but the thing is, it's not as simple as it sounds, because there's no chapter and verse in which we can turn, to which we can turn and say, oh, prayer is X, thus saith the Lord. There's, there's no chapter and verse that tells us that. So we have to try to understand, even so, what prayer is. And to me, there's two ways to learn the meaning of a thing. First, you could consult a dictionary, uh, look at the words, understand, you know, let the neural pathways connect, and rearrange your mental furniture to the degree that it accommodates that new definition. That's one way to learn the meaning of something. However, there is a potential problem with that because that kind of knowing can be deceitful. Because we can have our mental furniture arranged in the proper order, but then we behave as if we don't really know it. For example, I know the definition, the dictionary definition of 
humility. But yesterday, my wife and I were cleaning out our attic and going through all of our uh, papers and boxes and everything that was up there from our whole lives, and I found my elementary school report cards. And on one particular report card, in addition to having all my grades on one side, it had a list of character traits on the other. I don't think they do this anymore, but it was the 80s. So, um, (laughs) and so I got... I'm happy to report that on every character trait, I got satisfactory. I know it doesn't sound great, but I felt good about it, except, except for one. Under the little category where it said, only claims his fair share of attention. (laughs) It says, needs improvement. And that, that, my wife laughed very hard at that. And anybody who knows me is laughing hard at that because you know, if you know me, I've never been accused of taking up too little space uh, in a room. I mean, look at me right now. I'm here, here I am, and you're all, look, anyway. But the point is, I know the definition of humility. But if my third grade teacher and everybody's laughing at that, is any indication, do I, do I really know the definition of humility? Am I really humble? My, my guess is I still needs improvement. <laughs> and even if I read a hundred books on humility, which I've read a few, you know, I, even if I've studied all the passages in the scripture, I won't actually know the meaning of humility until I am humble. You see, you see the, the two different ways of knowing things. One is by rearranging your mental furniture, learning the words. The other is by acting it out, by behaving in that way. And I think it's the same thing for prayer. We don't know the definition of prayer by looking at the words. We understand what prayer is, what prayer means by praying. So if you want a good definition of prayer, you can go to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. They have a magnificent definition for prayer. Question 98, what is prayer? Answer, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. That's a beautiful answer. I love it. I, and, and I would assume that you are like me, and you hear that answer, and you're like, yes, and amen. That's a great answer. But every time I bow my knees in prayer, that definition seems to make no difference. My, my mental furniture is arranged properly. I used to have this memorized. I don't anymore. But like it, it's there And yet, when I actually get into the act of prayer, it doesn't seem to help me at all. And so, if we want to know what prayer is, we have to learn it by praying, not just by arranging our mental furniture just right. And if I'm honest, you know, I've, I've preached on prayer. I've read dozens of books on prayer. If you were here like three or four months ago, I had all my books here stacked up on, the, on prayer. Like I've read all the books. I've studied the prayer book of the Bible, the Psalms for hundreds of hours. And yet when I pray, I feel as though I know nothing. 
Maybe it's just me. It's, it's, it feels like, feels like learning a foreign language from a textbook. You know, you memorize all your vocabulary, you memorize all your endings and declensions and every, all the grammar, and you feel like you know it until you start speaking with, somebody, with a native speaker. And you're like, you can't put it together. You can't put all these things you put together, you learn, and you can't actually do the act of speaking, which was what all the studying was for. And so this year, we're going to learn to pray by praying. And today, we're going to learn what prayer is, not by giving a definition, because the Westminster Catechism has done that for us, but by watching our Lord pray. And so we're going to do that under three headings. First, the condition that makes prayer necessary. Second, the comfort that prayer brings. And third, the dependence that prayer engenders. So we're going to start with Christ's prayer in Gethsemane and, and talk about the, the condition that makes prayer necessary. And we're going to actually hold off on Christ's prayer because we have to set the grounds, we have to set the stage a little bit and get the context for why prayer is necessary at all. And so for that, let's begin in the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, here in the garden, we see humanity in perfection. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates all things. He creates these beings out of the overflow of his love and kindness and compassion. God created all of it, the, the earth, the, the sky, the sea, the animals, all of them. He created all of them. And what we see is that here in perfection, before this serpent comes into the garden, humanity is in the state of perfection. And that means that in perfection, the perfected state of humanity, human beings are dependent upon God. You see that? Because God created all things. He watered the garden. He gave them life. And in the midst of that, uh, in the midst of that environment, God set only one prohibition, and that was do not eat from the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And from everything we can tell in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve gladly obeyed that because dependence... In their minds, independence, no, dependence, was, it, it was bound up with their life and their happiness and their full flourishing. To, to be dependent on the creator was where their life was found. And we're not told why they're forbidden to eat the fruit of this tree. All we know is they trusted him and they did not eat of the tree. But then the serpent comes in and says... 
you will not surely die when you eat this. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. So he says, the serpent, when you eat of it, listen, you will no longer have to bear the weight, the terrible weight of dependence on God. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. You haven't eaten of the tree yet, therefore he's withholding that particular piece and you have to remain dependent on him. So if you eat of this tree, you no longer need God. And they got what they wanted. They agree with the serpent and they end up getting what they wanted. In verse eight, they, after they've eaten, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So when God enters the garden after the fall, Adam discovers that his new, newfound independence actually leads to something he never considered before, namely alienation. He says, I heard you and I was afraid, so I hid. There is now separation between the creation and the creator. And then that alienation becomes complete at the end of this chapter when they are finally cast from the garden of God's presence never to enter again. And then what we see from Genesis chapter 4 right after this all the way up to Genesis chapter 11 is the increasing downward spiral, maybe I should say decreasing downward spiral of human independence from God and the alienation that comes with that. And it all culminates in the building of the Tower of Babel. You remember why they built the Tower of Babel? We want to build a tower to reach to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. It is the fullness, the completion of human independence. But something astonishing happens in the space of Genesis 4 through 12, right after the Tower of Babel. In the midst of this increasing independence, in the midst of this increasing alienation of humanity from God, God steps in and invites humanity back into his family, back into communion, back into fellowship with him. First, with Noah and his family and the covenant he made with them. And then second, with Abraham and all of his descendants. He says, in, human beings, all they want is to be independent of me and you're Realizing the wreckage and the alienation and the loneliness and the fear and the anger that that causes, I am inviting you back into covenant relationship with me, into dependence upon me, that state that you've longed to escape. I'm inviting you back because this is where your life is found. And so, our heritage as fallen human beings is that we yearn for independence. But in our independence from God, we find ourselves alienated from him. We find ourselves fearful. 
And it's in prayer, if you're anything like me, it's in prayer that, that you really feel the burning ache of that alienation. You, this, for some of you, this may not be true, but for, for others of us, we, we pray and, and there's no sense of, of God's presence. We, we pray and there's no response. Like there, we, we feel the depth of that alienation because in prayer, this is the place where, where we feel our nakedness, where we feel like we have no clothes to hide under. And yet, God continues to invite us back into his presence through prayer. Okay, stage is set. Now, let's move to the second point, the comfort that prayer brings, and go back <clears throat> to our Lord. Let's pick up in Matthew 26, verse 37. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So the context here is that this is the night before Jesus' crucifixion. And he knows it's coming. Three times in the Gospels, he's taken his disciples aside and said, Listen, when we get to Jerusalem, they will... They will arrest me, treat me shamefully, they will kill me, and in three days I will rise again. So he knows what's coming the next day. And it says, therefore, because he knows that he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he even says, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Now, in English, <clears throat> we see two words here, sorrowful and troubled, and then Jesus repeats sorrowful. But under the English, in the Greek, there's actually three different words describing this emotional state of Jesus. We're not going to get into the weeds of, of the Greek words and everything, but just understand that the three different words really fill out what Jesus is feeling, feeling right now. He's saying, well, the first word is the same word that's used of the pain of childbirth. This deep, radiating wave of anguish. This is what Jesus is feeling. The second word has to do with weight. It's this heavy, crushing weight that is upon him. And by the way, that's very appropriate because he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, which was an olive garden. Gethsemane means olive press. As he is there, he is beginning to feel the press of the olives. He's beginning to feel the crushing weight of that press. And then the third word he uses here has to do with being far from home, like, like that ache that agony you feel about not being in the place where you belong. And the word we have for that is alienation. So this is what Christ is feeling in this moment. It's a terrible moment for him. And so therefore, he seeks comfort as anyone would. The first place he goes is to his disciples and he says, listen, this is the state of my soul. Stay awake with me. Pray with me. Watch with me. Well, they end up failing because they are, they're 
spirit is willing, but their flesh is weak. They are tired, they fall asleep. And so the second place Jesus seeks comfort, the place he knows where he will find comfort is prayer. In verse 39, and going a little farther, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came and found them, to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. So he says the same words three times. Now, in the next point, we're going to focus on the content of what he said. But here, I just want to focus on the fact that that he returned to prayer three different times, saying the same words. He's, He's terrified of this cup that he's going to have to drink. Now, what cup is he talking about? Well, likely he has in mind the cup from Psalm 75, verse 8, which says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. This is the cup that Christ is looking into. It's the cup of God's judgment for the wicked of the earth. And he says that the wicked of the earth will have to drain this cup all the way down to the dregs. And so Christ is looking into that cup. He sees the foaming wine. He sees the judgment that he is going to ingest. And he's terrified. And he's so profoundly um, sorrowful that in Luke's gospel, in Luke's version of this, it says that great drops of blood began to mix with his sweat and fall to the ground. Because he sees that he is going, he, as he looks into that cup, he sees he is going to be fully identified with the wickedness of humanity. And that's why he seeks comfort in prayer. And in Luke's gospel, what we see is after this first petition, after the first time he goes off and prays, an angel comes to him. It says that the angel strengthens him. And so the first lesson we learn is that prayer brings comfort to the alienated soul. Now, that brings us to the third point, the dependence that prayer brings. So prayer brings comfort. We see that from watching Jesus, but it also brings dependence. Now, in this prayer, Jesus learns full dependence upon God. If that makes you uncomfortable, remember, remember our theology. We believe that Jesus Christ was fully God, but he was also fully man, fully human. And therefore, if he is fully human, if he is actually the representative of us all, the outcome of this prayer cannot be certain. 
Like, he actually went and prayed that the cup might pass from him. And unless we believe he's just play-acting, he really did desire for that cup to pass. He looked into that cup and he saw the trial that awaited him, a trial that was far more intense, far greater than any human being had ever in the history of the world or would ever endure. He saw that and it crushed him. And he desired that the cup would pass. But he did prevail. He did prevail in this temptation. Each time he prays, he says, not my will, but yours, Father, be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Do you remember in the Gospel of John when Jesus said his, his disciples are, you know, upset that he's not eating anything? <clears throat> and he says to them, look, I've got food that you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of my Father. And so here in Gethsemane, we're going to find out if he was actually telling the truth or not. Is the will of God the only thing you need? And in order to see that, notice the progression of the prayers. The first prayer that he goes off to praise, there is a possibility in his mind of not drinking the cup. You see this? Uh, verse uh, 39. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And it's after this prayer, this first prayer, as I mentioned in Luke's gospel, that the angel comes and strengthens him. And presumably, what the angel said as the messenger of his father is, it's not possible. And the reason I say that is because in his second prayer, it's not a possibility for the cup to pass from him. Look, verse 42, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And so what we see is that Jesus is not seeking the comfort of avoiding God's will, but the strength to remain fully dependent upon God's will. And the comfort and the dependence which Jesus sought in prayer in this moment, he received. Because what we see in verse 45 is, then he came to the disciples and said, sleep and take your rest later on. The hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayer is at hand. He didn't argue with them. He didn't fight. In fact, when there was a fight, he said, put your sword away. All he did was offer his hands to his betrayer and the mob that he brought with them, and he was led away under cover of darkness. So the comfort and the dependence that he sought in prayer, he got. Because when the betrayer came, he said, I am here. It's time to drink the cup. Now, early in, in Matthew's gospel, 
Jesus is tempted in the wilderness three times. You remember this? Satan comes to him, and he tempts him. And essentially, the the essence of those temptations is, Jesus, be independent of God. Take your life in your own hands. And three times, Jesus denies him, and he remains dependent upon his father. But then at the very end of it, there's that ominous phrase where it says, and the devil left him. And he would return, excuse me, he left him until an opportune time. Now, it doesn't say this in the, in the text here, but I have to imagine that at least some of what Christ was agonizing over is that this, this was the opportune time. This was the moment when the tempter returned to him and said, Just take care of yourself. Don't be dependent. Did God really say? But in the end, Christ learned dependence through prayer. And when the betrayer comes, there's no struggle. He just offers his hands. And the next day, he stands before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. He is flogged. He is beaten. He is mocked. His beard is torn out. And he's made to carry his cross to the place of his own execution, at which they drive spikes through his flesh into wood, and they erect him in the Mediterranean sun. And in the darkest hour, as he begins to drink the cup of God's wrath in its fullness, he feels that alienation, that ancient alienation that was earned by Adam and Eve in the garden. He begins to feel that. He begins to feel the withdrawal of the presence of the Lord. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, there is no comfort. There's only a black sky in response. And after three hours, that broken body breathed its last. And in that broken body, what we see is utter alienation from God. This is what it looks like. What we see in this body is the awful cost of human independence. And it's not because he deserved it. What we just saw is that there was no man in the history of the world who was more dependent on God, who was closer to his Father than Jesus Christ was. It was not because he deserved it. He did not embody that punishment because he deserved it, but because we deserved it. And so Jesus Christ in his crucified body, picture it in your mind, in his crucified body is a monument to our independence is a monument and a picture of our alienation. But it says that when he died, in that moment that he breathed his last, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And then three days later, as that broken body was laying in a tomb, it came back to life. It was raised to life by the power of God. And in that moment, in that triumph over death, Jesus Christ crushed the head of that ancient serpent, never to die again. And he entered into everlasting fellowship at the right hand 
of his father. Now, let's try to apply this quickly. Prayer is the place where we also find comfort and where we also learn dependence. First, because Jesus was refused, because when Jesus cried out for comfort on the cross and he was refused, and he did that in our place, he he took the refusal that belongs to us because he was refused. That means that, ne- that we never will be in prayer. Whatever our experience is, <clears throat> it can't be that God is refusing us because that refusal was born by Jesus. Remember, the veil tore. It, it did not come back together. The veil is torn in the body of Jesus Christ. The second thing it means for us is that although independence seems best for us, because dependence is a a frightful prospect, there is something terrifying about saying these words that Jesus said. Here's what I desire, but not my will. Yours be done. There's something terrifying about saying that because in, in being dependent... We are casting all of our hopes, our dreams, our, our, our desire for flourishing, we are casting it upon another. But Jesus Christ, he was the one who came, and his Father sent him. The one who invites us to dependence is the same God who sent his Son, Jesus Christ, And Christ, then, is the everlasting monument also that that God, who is inviting us into dependence through prayer, is good. And he wants our goodness. And he wants our flourishing. And so in prayer, we, like Christ, become what we were made to be, dependent creatures at home in the presence of God. Amen. Now we come to this table, as we do every week. And this table represents God's extraordinary effort to reverse our alienation and teach us dependence. And in the ancient world, table fellowship meant mutual acceptance. If you sit at my table and we share this meal, we are okay. We are together. And so as you come to this table at Christ's invitation, he is welcoming you home into the acceptance of the Father. As you come to this table, you are also learning dependence. No matter what circumstances you bring to this table, Christ says to you, my grace is sufficient for you. So come to this table, my brothers and sisters, and feast upon his plenty. Let us pray. Our Father, not one of us gives ourselves to prayer in a way that makes us feel accomplished. Every one of us feels naked in prayer. Many of us feel alone. 
But Father, will you grant us the grace to know that every time we show up, every time we respond to your invitation, we are coming home. That you see us, that you love us, that you come running down the pathway and put the finest clothes upon us, the ring on our finger and kill the fattened calf because your son or your daughter has come home. Please grant us that grace. And we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this meal is for you, so come and welcome to Jesus Christ.